Well, good morning, Christ Chapel. Would you please take a Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 5 in that blue Bible, wherever you might be. And by the way, welcome to everyone who's streaming, everyone down in Burleson at the South Campus, all of you out there at Parker County. We love you, especially the Hive, uh, and uh, also to Converge. Welcome to everyone. In the blue Bible, in each of those venues, it's page 913, if I recall correctly. Page 913, we're in the book of Acts, chapter 5 in our study of Acts, a pretty remarkable book, the history of the church. I was thinking about as I was unpacking this passage, how words, uh, in each generation, there are words that surface in the culture. Like for instance, when in the 60s, you know, this day's senior day, but senior day also, uh, (laughs) seniors has different meanings, doesn't it? Well, we use the word groovy. In high school, I used the word groovy. Can you believe that? What does groovy mean? Good. That's good. We used the word boss in the early 70s. That's, that meant, that's good. Uh, later, like in the 80s, righteous. Man, that's righteous, dude. It meant, that's good. But words today and phrases today are a little harder. For instance, today, just recently, what, what's an atmospheric river? I keep expecting fish to fall from the heavens. Atmospheric, have you heard that one? How about comorbidity coming out of the epidemic? Comorbidity, sounds like a brand new Chevrolet EV. I got my new comorbidity, zero to 60 in three seconds. What does comorbidity mean? What does that mean? I think it actually means tremendously overweight, so you're susceptible to disease. How about this one, gas lighting? I thought that meant grilling in the backyard, I really did. Guys love to grill. We love fire. We love gas. It's a bomb. You just walk out and and, and raw meat. It's a guy's deal. But gaslighting means changing someone else's reality. How about this one? Virtue signaling. That's easy. Acts chapter 5, verse 1, please. Read along with me, would you? A few weeks into the birth of the church in the city of Jerusalem, Peter is the apostle in charge. Verse 1 says, Acts chapter 5, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostle's feet. But Peter said, Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last. And a great fear came upon all who heard of it. And the young men rose and wrapped him and carried him out and buried him. Verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, his wife, Sapphira, which means beautiful, came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? 
Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Sobering, isn't it? I mean, that's a worship service gone bad. I've preached for 42 years, and I've never had anyone die in a worship service. Now, I've had a lot of people fall asleep uh, and wish they were dead, but I've never had anybody drop dead in a worship service. That, that's a worship service gone bad. I have a dear friend, O.S. Hawkins, who was pastoring in Fort Lauderdale many years ago, and in the middle of his sermon, the doors blow open, it's a very large church, and this skinhead guy in a leather vest comes walking right down the center aisle, chained to two German shepherds. Now, that's a worship service gone bad. And they stopped right there in front of this pulpit. That doesn't make me drop dead myself. He handled it well, and it worked out okay. I have another dear friend, Dennis Swanberg. He was pastoring First Baptist Church Saginaw, Easter of 1989. And uh, the place was packed. It's Easter. People were standing around the house. The, the choir was up there, and suddenly a leak started coming from the ceiling. And, oh, that's a problem. So he sent Deacon Dennis and Brother Bob to turn off the AC or to do something about it. And the next thing he knows, they're singing. They're hearing walking above him. And then the next thing they know, the worship service went bad because Deacon Dennis fell through the ceiling. <laughs> to make it worse, he straddled the beam. And so his legs were just dangling like that. And he said the other day, when the service was over, there was a farmer who'd come and his wife said, Pastor, as they were exiting after Easter Sunday, Pastor, um, I told my wife, I don't really like to go to church, but when I, I'll go with you today, but I'll bet you the ceiling falls in. And sure enough, it did. <laughs> Worship service gone bad. This was uh, a difficult time in the history of the church. Parenthetically, a couple quick observations. First, this text, many people say it's about communism and socialism because up in chapter four, up higher up, it says they had everything in common. They sold, they took care of each other's, need, each other's needs. It was, it, it's all often touted in theological books and by some more liberal theologians as being a testimony for communism and socialism because the church was just selling everything. But actually, it's more for capitalism because there were meets and bounds these individuals own property, which they were free will to sell, which is what Peter says to them. And anytime you have meets and bounds, there's a, a economic system that's more capitalistic. And capitalism has its own issues, but it's still in a fallen world the best. And the New Testament and the Old Testament, our Lord himself was a uh, stonemason and also a wood craftsman. He was working for a living like everybody. The second thing comes out of this, just parenthetically, is this idea that this couple was punished because they didn't give enough. Who would be here this morning if we were punished for not giving enough? All of us wouldn't be here, <laughs> me included. It's not about not giving enough. It's about Christian virtue and Christian character. So back to the text, please. Look at the text with me. Why did God respond so severely to Ananias and Sapphira? You have to be asking that question. Because every single one of us at some point in our lives made a promise to God. 
We've been in a foxhole somewhere, right? Police officer come up behind you and you see the lights flip on. You think, oh God, if you'll just get me out of this, I'll never speed again. He goes around you, gets the person in front of you, and you sped on your way to church today. Right? Why so severe, Lord? Why, why is this such severe punishment? We've all been in those foxholes. And, well, there's two reasons. And take out your sermon notes very quickly. Two reasons. A vertical reason between Ananias and Sapphira and God, the Father, and a horizontal reason with the church. And by the way, this couple were in Christ. They were not Judas as a couple. They were in Jesus. They had the Spirit of God. We know that because they responded to the Spirit of God. So the first is a vertical reason. And point A in your sermon notes there is, Ananias and Sapphira had felt the prompting, prompting of the Holy Spirit, but be, became convinced by the enemy that they could scam God. That's what this is about. It's about virtue. It's about character. They could scam God. And so let me do this for just for a moment. Let me use my sanctified imagination to see if I can paint the picture for us. The, the church in that day there in Jerusalem was strong with the spirit of the Holy Spirit and the spirit of generosity. Jesus, the generous one, had just given his life and then he rose from the dead for our sins to be forgiven. The church is on fire. The spirit of God is present and people were generous, very generous. Looking at the, 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 the needs of the poor and the needy there, there wasn't a welfare system in ancient Israel. The Romans did not take care of the Jews or their own people. The Jews didn't take care of each other either, especially not the hierarchy. So this presence of the church there, by the way, here's where the church was meeting. It was meeting in the porch area of the temple. Somewhere around the colonnade there, the church was meeting. There were about 5,000 people involved with the church at this point. That's a big crowd. So whether Peter was holding multiple worship services every day, were they singing like we do? Were they they weren't taking up an offering. People were just bringing their proceeds and selling their land so that the poor and the needy who are coming to Christ could be cared for. And, and so that somewhere in that colonnade area, the church is meeting every day. So Sapphira and Ananias come to the church service and they hear Peter teach, obviously, and they see this tremendous generosity and the Spirit of God grabs them and pulls them and says, I want you to sell that piece of property at the corner of Damascus Road in the way called Beautiful. And they looked at each other and said, let's do that. And then they announced, and this is my sanctified imagination. I'm just, this is what it seems like happened. Something like this. They announced to Peter or to the church, we're going to give the piece of property on the corner of, and we think it's worth 100,000, there I. And everybody goes, well, amen. And they start clapping and they leave the worship service. They call the realtor. The realtor puts it up for sale and it sells because the Holy Spirit's involved overnight. Not for 100,000 denarii, but 150,000 denarii. So Ananias and Sapphira are alone. There are the coins laying on their kitchen table. Realtor goes out the door and they look at each other and they hear a whisper. You know, you told the church probably around 100,000 denarii. You've got 150,000 there. You could kind of keep your commitment and still have that little lake house up by the Galilee. $50,000 is all. You could have both. And the church would see you like the other generous individuals who stood up and sold everything. They heard this whispering in their hearts and their ears. The Holy Spirit said to them, do what you committed to do. 
So Ananias comes to the first service. He gives the money, the 100,000 denarii. Peter sees, Peter's discerning. He knows exactly what's happened. The Spirit of God speaking to him as well. Sapphira, who had went to the realtor's office to buy the lake house at the Galilee before someone else bought it, was a hot real estate market like today. She comes back and, well, you see what happens here. So very strong spirit of giving. And what they did is they tried to scam God. And this was a very fresh moment in the history of the church. Brand new, fresh moment. You have to understand that. So B, God made an example of this couple because they perpetrated sin in a key revelatory period in redemptive history. What does that mean? Beloved, throughout human history, from Moses and Mount Sinai all the way to Joshua going into the land of promise, into the land of Canaan, all the way to the the birth of the church, there's been periods of revelation where God's shown himself in a greater, deeper way to his people. The church is the biggest one in all of history. By the way, the first time the word ecclesia is used in the gospel, in the book of Acts rather, is right here in chapter 5. First time. In the Old Testament, after Moses brought the children of Israel out and they came to Mount Sinai, Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, both brought false incense to the worship. And God took their lives with fire instantly, both of them. At the very beginning of that redemptive time when the when the truth was being given to God's people. And then later on, when Joshua's in, uh, in the promised land with his people, um, Achan, Achan stole some from Jericho, some gold and silver and hid it. And, and he and his whole family lost their lives. And now we come to this pivotal point in human history where God's not gonna allow his church, this infant church, to fall to Satan's ploy of spiritual pretense. And by the way, this is called a sin unto death. And when I think about this passage, here's what I think about it. In high school, I played a little football. I wasn't good. I, I was a uh, tailback. I played a couple plays and the coach would say, get your tail back on the bench. And so I would do, I would do that. But coach Tommy Reynolds was a pro football player who took over high school. And he, he would have every year, beginning of the year, beginning of a new revelatory period, he had this policy. If any of you takes a towel, wets it, and pops each other or another football player in the shower, your life is going to be cursed. He t- the first day of practice every year, new, new group, sure enough, no matter what he said, Somebody would take a towel, wrap it up, and start popping. He would stand outside the shower stalls. First afternoon, first practice, waiting. And he would apply the Board of Education to the seat of learning. (laughs) It took me days to sit down, but I got it. I finally got there. That's That's what the Lord's doing here. He's showing the church. So second reason a horizontal reason. It has to do with, this is so obvious, isn't it? It has to do with the example they were setting with each other. The church was designed to be a showpiece of godly virtues. And by the way, if you want to just go to sleep now and not listen anymore, let me give you the big idea. The church is designed to be the showpiece of godly virtue and godly character. The church, the world knows nothing of what we are supposed to be and believe and those virtues. The world does doesn't, and so when we fake it, it's displeasing to God, for sure. 
horizontal reason. This couple with virtue signaling and exemplifying to the early church an attitude that dishonors Jesus. They wanted to be seen. They wanted to be embraced. B, God wants to press on all generations of believers. That's us. That's why we're preaching the sermon this morning. The responsibility to reflect, God, to reflect godly virtues to a lost world. Pay, pay close attention, my dear Christian friends, to this message. You're still sitting here this morning and you've done worse than Ananias and Sapphira, most likely. So have I. But there's a deep, deep spiritual message here for every single one of us. Satan knows how to lie to the hearts and minds of genuine Christians. He does. And we hear him many times. Ephesians chapter 6. That's why Paul gives us that the armor. Acts chapter 20. We're told to be alert. In the book of James, we're told to be alert. So... Would you please look with me at chapter 5, verse 1 again? Chapter 5, verse 1 again. Look what he says. He uses a conjunctive. Luke does, the physician. He attaches with the word but. This passage, these verse 11 verses we've just read, to the, to the text above where the church is giving, selling, but look with me at verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. If he was a Levite, he probably didn't have a lot. But he had land, I think in Jerusalem, I don't think in Cyprus. Sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so what hap what's happening here is Luke is giving us Ananias and Sapphira in juxtaposition to Barnabas. He's giving us a man who lived out Christ-honoring virtues and a couple who did not. And if you squeeze this text together, three virtues come out of it. Three, I think, the trilogy of all the biblical texts concerning how God wants us to live. The three virtues of our lives. Humility, generosity, and integrity. There they are. Humility, Barnabas had that, obviously. Generosity, Barnabas had that, obviously. Integrity, Barnabas. So, so let's unpack this trilogy again in your notes there. And by the way, I make this comment in your notes. Authentic Christian community is shaped by virtues that the world cannot grasp. Where in the world do you see humility? Real biblical godly humility. I don't see it. And I don't see it sometimes in the church or in the mirror. Where in the world do we see godly generosity? Real generosity. I'm totally committed to this fact. If the church around the world was as generous as God wants us to be, there'd be no welfare system in any state in the world hypocrisy what a problem we have with that three virtues let's look at them quickly first humility humility these virtues of people's lives who are changed for Christ pride is the sin that God seems to hate the most are you aware of that look at these passages James chapter 4 and verse 6 
but he gives more grace. God gives more grace. Therefore, the Bible says, the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you know God opposes arrogance? In our present society, arrogance and lack of humility is almost a positive character trait. It is not in the kingdom of God. It is not. Proverbs 8, 13, the fear of the Lord is a hatred of evil. Pride, arrogance, and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate, says the Lord. Daniel DeVoy writes in his book, pride is the first peer and the president of hell. Pride is the president of hell. Pride hinders God's ability to give us grace, blessing in our lives. By the way, Adam and Eve, Satan whispered to Adam and Eve, you know what? You could be just like God. They whispered, he whispered to Ananias and Sapphira, you could be just like Barnabas. Loved by the congregation, generous, humble. You know, I really wrestle with this, uh, this virtue. If you were to ask me as a pastor, where do I and have I seen virtue show up in the most devastating ways over the last 42 years that Lynn and I have been a part of Christ Chapel. It would be with the word envy. The green eyes of envy, the green-eyed monster called envy. So I sat down with a pen and pencil and I wrote out some things to myself about envy. You know what envy means? (laughs) Being envious of someone else as a Christian. I wrote this down. Once envy envy has found a home in my heart, It resists conviction. Some of you are listening, maybe by internet, maybe in one of our worship venues, and you're eaten alive with envy, and you know what? You don't even know it or believe it. It eats us up inside, and we can't, it resists conviction. Don't ever underestimate the depths to which we are able to sink to make ourselves look good. Comparison with others is almost always sinful. The disciples did it regularly, by the way, so we're in good company as God's disciples. But I I, I think this is the most important statement to myself. Listen to this. When you accept the fact that God does not want you to be well known, you'll begin to be blessed. It's true. Humility. I've got some other axioms for humility. It's just the positive side. This is the Barnabas side of these virtues. For the church, there is no such thing, uh, or no, there should be no human reputation to protect. For you, Christian, there should be no human reputation for you to protect. Richard Foster, in his book, he's got a book called Humility. It's kind of weird, but, you know, it's, he talks about humility. And I've written down some of the things I believe are very significant. He says this, we should be free from building a reputation for others to desire. Demanding our position is foreign to a humble spirit. Later in the book, he says, humility humility possesses a friendly ease with others. You ever been around someone who you know they weren't listening to you because they're thinking about what they're going to say next? I'm guilty of that. In the church, there's no need to call attention to yourself. Hence, you can fully enjoy the presence of others. Do you ever thought about that? Sometimes we come to church and we're so knotted up inside. Why? Because you're not here for the right reasons. 
And you, you can't even hear others because there's so much pretense inside you. No embellishments, no exaggerations. Spiritual application, when we are more concerned about our reputation than our character, there is no limit to what we will do. Hello, Annas. Hello, Sapphira. The second one is generosity, and I won't spend much time on generosity. You know what that means. Greed, however, is interesting. The scriptures are very clear about love of money. The love of money is the root of all evil. May I remind you, he doesn't say, the scripture doesn't say money is the root of all evil. Abraham was a very wealthy man. In every church, there are wealthy people and people that are more modest resources. The issue is, do you love money more than generosity, more than your God? Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Why? Because of greed. It's so easy to fall into that trap. I wrote this down to myself. The temptation to get a reputation for greater generosity than the facts warrant is not uncommon in our church. I had coffee with a dear friend last week and he said to me, you know, used to be when I'd bring resources to the church, I'd want to be sure someone knew about it. And he said, as I look back on that, I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed. He's growing in Christ. Generosity. Look at James chapter 1, verse 5. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all who without reproach, to all without reproach, and it will be given to them. 1 Thessalonians 2, 5. For we never came with words of flattery. This is Paul speaking, as you know, nor with a pretext of greed. Paul never did his ministry with any greed in mind. No end result for him that was financially fruitful. And in chapter 4, verse 34, just above it says this. They were of one heart with all their possessions. So incredibly generous. And may I say this? Churches can be generous or greedy. Churches can be greedy. Over the years, I've noticed churches being greedy. And I'll say this publicly, and it's not a pat on my back or the, it's on your back. This church has never been greedy. Ever. You have built, you built a church in a Muslim country, a church on a hill, and you paid for it, and it cost millions of dollars. And it witnesses to, to Jesus day in and day out in a major Muslim city overseas. You spend thousands of dollars to try to stop sexual trafficking. You spend millions of dollars over the years to teach and train our young men and women for the future. You send missionaries to take the gospel around the world. You've done that. And our board of elders has been willing to spend that money and put it where God's directing them. There's no greed here. There's no greed in this church. Maybe in your heart but not, not in this church. No greed. And the last one is humility. Humility. Well, oh, oh, first, my application for this one is when the Holy Spirit reminds us of the generosity of Jesus, that's why we do this, it should open wide our hearts and our pocketbooks. It should open wide our hearts and pocketbooks. Finally, sincerity, integrity, not hypocrisy. And I want to shock you with just something that, that I just read a couple of months ago. George Barna, who's a famous Christian surveyor, he surveys, does sampling of our culture and society. 
actually approach thousands of individuals who do not care for spiritual things, who are not Christians, who want nothing to do with a spiritual life and definitely not with a church, and ask the question, why do you have no interest in Christ? Three reasons. First, science, evolution. Second was the problem of evil. There are 232 active wars in our world right now. The problem of evil. Why is a good God allowing these things to happen? Finally, hypocrisy in the church. Of those three, which do you think was high and above the other two? Which was number one? Hypocrisy in the church. The world says no to Jesus. Now, they may use this as an excuse because their hearts are cold and they're refusing to come to Christ. But the world says no to Jesus and blames us because those three virtues are often absent. James chapter 3, verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceful, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, and the word sincere, no duplicity, no hypocrisy. 1 Peter 2, 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. You know what hypocrisy is? Jesus talked about it. It's being two-faced. The thing he hated most in the Gospels was hypocrisy amongst the religious leaders. Hypocrisy is deliberately deceiving others into thinking you're more spiritual than you really are. I love what George McDonald says. Listen to this. Half of the misery in this world comes from trying to look instead of trying to be what one is not. The best definition of character is are you the same in broad daylight as you are in the darkness? <laughs> we must be virtue keepers, not fakers. The church is the pillar and the support of the truth. The church is God's temple in which he dwells. And Satan seeks to get into the ranks of as many traitors as he can in attaching himself to us because when we represent Something other than the virtues of Jesus. By the way, you take the word humility. Take humility in its essence. Take generosity in its essence. Take integrity in its essence. And who do you see suddenly come on the screen? Our wonderful, miraculous Savior. And the enemy wants to destroy that. And he's done a pretty decent job, in my humble opinion. In the pulpits in our country and in the pews in our country. When we make truth, transparency... And authenticity, highest priority, it attracts the world to Jesus, not to us, to Jesus. This narrative reminds me what God thinks about purity and about its priority, virtue, character in the church. Now, I may turn your worship experience now bad, but I have a couple of questions for you. They just come naturally right out of this text. Questions for me too. I've wrestled with them, you know. Here they are. As I said, maybe a worship service gone bad for you, but if God killed all religious deceivers today, how many people would be in the church pews this morning? In the pulpits. 
Are you a virtue signaler, a virtue faker, or a virtue keeper? Where is hypocrisy in your life? Where is generosity? Where is integrity, sincerity? Where is that you're the same in daylight as you are in the darkness? There's nothing hidden. It's all there. I asked myself this question just actually this morning. How often have I sat in my quiet time area and asked myself the question, why am I doing that? Why am I preaching this morning? Why am I giving that sum of money? Why am I serving in this capacity or that capacity? Why? It speaks to motive. What's our motive? What's our motive? You know, I think we're a big screen of character and virtue in this, to this world. And when people see that big screen, like in Times Square in New York, that big screen, you know, New Year's Eve, and they see these virtues, they, it attracts them to Jesus. Are you a virtue signaler? Or are you a virtue keeper? And if you've looked in the mirror and you say, I'm disgusted with who I am, I want to tell you you're in good company. Peter was disgusted with who he was. He was a virtue signaler. He was a hypocrite. I'm not sure how greedy he was, but uh, he was a man of uh, great pride and arrogance. He denied Jesus three times the night that our Lord was being betrayed and crucified. And yet he met Jesus on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and there he repented. So my challenge to you this morning is, are you a virtue keeper? What's your character really like? Are you a faker? And if you're a faker, you need to repent. Just like Peter did. And he became the chief apostle of the early church. You need to repent. It's like the young, uh, young man who said, a Jewish man who said to his rabbi one day, Rabbi, when should I repent of my sin, of pride, of greed, of hypocrisy? And the rabbi responded, the day before you die. He responded back to the rabbi, I don't know when I'm going to die. And the rabbi said, exactly. Today. Pray with me, would you? Well, Father, um, I pray that you'd bring back to the church a sense of humility, the humility of Christ, and not allow us to be even proud that we're humble, but rather just the sincere, simple humility of Christ. Generosity, sincerity, that we might be more like Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen.